This is the Rockonomics Podcast number 15, which is really part two of episode 14 with producer, engineer, studio owner, and musician Mitch Easter. Last week, we talked to Mitch about how he came to opening a recording studio in his parents' garage, working with R.E.M., his own band Let's Active, dealing with label execs, touring, and meeting his heroes. So let's pick up our conversation just as we get into some of Mitch's other recording credits. So without further ado, this is part two of my conversation with Mitch Easter. Let's move on, I guess, to uh, I guess uh, more of your producing engineering. You know, back back to that. I I, I was um, surprised to see some of the names uh, you worked with. Um, one of them was Suzanne Vega. Just a little bit. Were yeah. you engineering on her? Or producing no, I, her? I, well, um, the, the guy Steve Adaba, who was her manager but also produced her records, wanted to bring some other people into the scene of her record making, and. That's how that happened, and okay. and and so I just went up there, and it was this fairly low key thing. But she recorded a song called Gypsy, and I was there when they did that, and I said whatever I said, you know, and um, and they they had also had they had started that record, so they had a basic track on that song Luca, which went on to be a big hit. But Steve wanted me to play guitar on it, so I played guitar on that song. Did I you really? I don't know if you could hear it in the mix, but I did play on oh, it. Oh yeah, totally. It's, um, I think it's kind of more and, up front than you remember. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, but I don't know if it was me or Steve or what. Okay. But anyway, I mean, but um, I think that's all we did. But I, you know, anyway, I did have a little bit of involvement with that record, which was which was cool. Um, another one I didn't realize was "Summer Teeth" by Wilco, and I know they had like a slew of different people. But what to what they were on tour and they were doing that that thing that that Led Zeppelin two thing of like just stopping in studios here and there when they could while being on tour, you know, and they. I had met them before because Brian Paulson, who did their first record, mm -hmm. um, they were playing in Winston-Salem not too long after that, and Brian had them come by here, just or they just wanted to come by and say hello to him. So that's when I met them, and um, and I guess they remembered this place. This is this was during the brief time when the studio was in this house here. And um, so when they came through on tour, they got in touch about laying down a couple of tracks. They had a couple of days off. So it's pretty funny. Their big tour bus and all their crew and everything were here. And that was just sitting out in the driveway. It was a huge tour bus with a trailer, you know, <laughs> which went from one end of the driveway to the other. And um, and they did, I think, two songs. They okay. might have recorded some more, but th there's two on the record that were done here. Now, what was the band dynamic like then? Because I know Jay Bennett was still part of the band, and he left the yeah. band shortly after. And, it, and I mean, it seemed fine to me. I, okay. I'm, I'm kind of oblivious. But, I, I mean, it was a good session. Nobody okay. was mad at anybody. It was right. good. You know? I, I was going to lead you to, I was going to ask this earlier, as wearing the many hats as a producer-engineer is, you know, psychiatrist. Like, I, I know working with creative people, a lot of times you're probably talking off the ledge or whatever you may be doing. Like, how, what's your take on I don't on? know. There, maybe there is something about me that has a calming effect because when I started, I mean, I'm – joking but i do wonder sometimes because you you know the, the popular mythology is all this blood and guts you know which has never been true on sessions mm -hmm. i've worked on like never you know the worst thing that ever happens is somebody gets mad and walks out of the room and then they're back in 10 minutes you know that's like the worst thing that's right, ever right. happened and you know and i don't know why that is um because um yeah everybody and that was a really fun session for me and i didn't get the sense anybody was being stepped on or sure. felt out of place or anything. It was just uh, kind of efficient and fun, you know. Is that carry on throughout your career in terms of having to console people, I guess, for lack of a better description? 
Just again, I know artists are so, you know, sometimes not volatile is not the word, but maybe delicate at times, or there's always, you well, know, I'm sure there are times when and, I have been completely off base about it. There were a couple of times when I realized, oh, I'm getting them upset, and I didn't even realize it, you know. Right. But I think that if they, I think if people think that you respect them and you halfway are paying attention to them, that they're, it's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there have been very few. I, can't really ever think of like yeah. having to go off with the singer and say, "Now listen, Matt, it's going to be cool." You I mean, I've never done that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I, uh, there must just be something about me that either makes them think like he's too stupid to know what we're talking about. We're not going to say anything, or they just calm down. Or I, I don't know what it is, but it's I've, a southern it, charm. Yeah, that's it. The, the studio scene has been pretty placid, and that's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really. I mean, like I say, I don't really enjoy arguing, but I will. I mean, there have been a couple of times when I've gotten irritated with them, and I'm sure they know it. And there's probably something about that that has been good, you know, to some extent. You have to sometimes be a little bit shocking, and that works. Mm-hmm. I mean, my friend Don Dixon, who's a much nicer person than I am, can can really let the band have it at just the right time, and it works. You right. Know? Um, he can do that in a way that I can't, but it's it's good that he does. I mean, I don't think he's ever done it for no reason. You know, mm-hmm. it's always to get the record made. You know, but um, yeah. Anyway, the short answer is um, that was a great session. I really had fun on that Wilco thing. You know, and it was cool that they used the tracks. Yeah, that's I, I love that album. Um, I'm probably going to get in the minutia a little bit, but I'm just very curious about. Like you mentioned, like you know, I know you've got a guest house as part of this studio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we might be seemingly a little bit out of the way, and you put people up where do you stay like i notice in my research there's like a picture of you in a san francisco studio and a picture of you here it's like what is that <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous but is that factored into your your price of doing the project it's like well i need to stay in a hotel or get a rental here and it's going to be two weeks here oh yeah yeah okay i mean you know usually i'd stay in a hotel but some of these studios had residential quarters like i worked at this place in san francisco called uh, brilliant that had this fabulous sort of apartment as part of the studio and i had that you know so that happens sometimes it's always nice and this you know england was really big on those residential studios that are like these sort of country manor places you know that are studios and i've worked at a couple of those and so they've got that built in and do you do you like working at do you like getting out and working at different studios yeah it's fun yeah it's fun to just meet the new you know work with the people that typically you know the staff people are fun to meet and work with and just Mm -hmm. the new environment is fun and how do you go about um, – I know sometimes sessions go a lot longer than you ever expected. Like how does that – are you are you priced out on a project basis or a daily basis it's or usually a monthly it's basis? A project. I mean, you know, it's it's all changed. It's become more um, – well, it's just become more humble, you know. Um, right. I mean, but, I notice your website now, It's you've got like a day rate. But back in, back in the heyday, so to speak. Well, what would happen is um, – these these producer kind of things were like, you know, we want you to make our record. That would usually be like what they, I guess they would call it all-in or something. It was a, just a price, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but did you, I'm sorry, did you have an all-in price? Like, here's the all-in, but... I mean, everything <laughs> everything's different. Okay. You know, a lot of times, like, like I, I did a bunch of records with that band Game Theory in California, and they would have, they meaning various people, would have arranged the studio typically. They would have picked some place out, and they would just have me come out and do it so you know what i got paid for was just to work in the studio i don't know what they were paying the studio i you know a lot of um producers do this 
package kind of thing. Like, I will make you a record, and the studio is going to cost this, and I'm going to cost this, and I need per diems, and I need a hotel, and of course, I need four limos, you know, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. That is the way it's done a lot, but I always did it in a more humble kind of way. And sure. I, and I, and, and typically, I didn't pick the studios out just for whatever reason. Um, so all they had to do was pay me, and then the price would just be whatever they could scrape up, and if I wanted to do it. Right. And you mentioned earlier at a time you had management. So for someone, a little while. Someone was kind of fielding the offers and yeah, helping that was, negotiate that, it? That didn't work for me at all. Um, it should have, but it didn't. It, it, um, <laughs> You're too it, nice a guy. <laughs> no, it, it, it just didn't work. You know, it's funny. The, um, these were – well, I'll tell you, the, it, it was um, – there was a, a woman who was working for a producer manager who was a friend of a friend, and I met with her to talk about it. The idea being that, like, well, why not do – projects and get paid more money for them you know and maybe not do as many so that i could keep having my stupid band you know that i like having you know um or make my own records or any of that you know that's always the dream that tends to get kind of slowly whittled away at when you do this stuff you know and um so i was i thought well i might as well check this out all these other people have managers you know and she this woman is great and she was super nice and then the guy she was working for was super nice, and I had a great meeting with him when I was in California one time. Him and his wife both were just the nicest people, and they were very chill. You know, They didn't really care if you worked all the time or you worked sometimes. They just thought it was all cool. They just liked it. They had a bunch of people they worked with, and they were all different types of people, and that was great. But then right after that, the guy decided to get out of the business or change his business, and he sort of turned this agency over to somebody else. And it never felt right to me after that. Right. Um, they were, for lack of a better word, not as cool according to yeah. me. You know, they're cool in their own way. And they sure. were nice people, but it was not, as they say, as good a fit. Right. So what would happen was they would um, they would approach people about me and be told that, no, we don't want that REM sound. And I, it made me think, well, you're just talking to the wrong people, you know. And then what would happen is that I would get inquiries like I always did just on my on own, own. And then I would hand it over to them, and they could sometimes get me paid more. But that was about it. They never had any luck, like, developing my career in the way that they thought that they mm-hmm. should have. So eventually they just dumped me, you know, and, which was fine because it was kind of depressing. I started feeling like they see me as the sort of loser guy on their roster. But then again, I think they also saw me doing all these records that I probably didn't want to do, you know. Right. Uh, I don't – again, I don't think they quite got the sort of indie world that I was coming from, mm-hmm. you know. They, they were pretty Hollywood, really, you know. Yeah. And – it would have been great, you know, to have made some mainstreamy records that made a bunch of money and stuff, just to check that out and to experiment with it, you know. But I, uh, I guess I wasn't totally comfortable with that either, so I didn't really push for it. Right. I just thought that I'd be able to do the kind of thing I had been doing and maybe just have it be handled a little more professionally. Um, but also, you know, times are always changing, so the kind of records that were being made by the 90s and stuff were different and in the 90s i felt very very out of fashion mm-hmm. and i and i was you know and so i think that was part of the problem with that so they got me a couple of good things i mean there were um like i mixed some stuff for that band ride and that was really cool and that came through them you know but for the most part they didn't really get me new work mm-hmm. you, know? you mentioned it what do you do when there's a Maybe there's a song or it's just not – you're not kind of believing in it or you're not like – I mean even the best artists can – if they have 10 songs on them, they got one stinker that – I mean how do you – how do you take – do you kind of compartmentalize or just say, you know, well, I'll make it sound as good as I can 
in what I yeah, do. Yeah, because or? that might be everybody's favorite song. I mean, even John Cougar <laughs> Mellencamp himself apparently never really liked Jack and Diane, but it was huge. Right. Uh, I think, um, so there's that. But, um, I mean, again, I think that, like, um, I mean, this is slightly embarrassing for me in a way. I think people think that I'm a bigger deal than I am. You know, I'm mainly still and always was, like, an operator of a little studio. And... So I'm in the studio business more than really being a producer. You know, mm-hmm. people love the idea of producers and Svengali's and career builders and all that. And I am a little bit more of just kind of a studio nerd guy that just likes to make the sounds and stuff. And I don't really think that much about the career. I mean, I do, but my task for most of these sessions is to help them do what they want to do and have it come out good. Right. You know, and. So they don't really, these bands that are paying me directly don't really want me to say, well, I hate your songs, you know, go write yeah, new yeah. ones. You know, they kind of want me to record those songs because they like them and they want to make a record now. And um, so I just do it, you know. And but the thing that's fortunate is that um, because I did get to have a reputation early on, I've always been lucky about that. I've, I don't think I've ever worked with any band where I just hated every minute of it. Sure, you know? sure. There's, there was something good there. And it is kind of an interesting challenge to work on stuff that is maybe not your cup of tea, but you can see how it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we just put some nice guitar on it here and a piano there and change the beat here and stuff, you can have a nice track and that'll make everybody happy. That's that's really kind of the job more than me, you know, selling the world on what I think they should be listening to, you know, mm-hmm. and so... You know, I think in a way that's a disappointing answer to a lot of people who want to think that every single thing you do equals this mega stamp of approval, but that's not totally realistic, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but having said that, there is sort of a thread to what I've done that has just happened sort of cosmically, and thank goodness, because <laughs> it would be hard to work. I mean, I would just sort of, well, okay, like when I was in school, I really, really, really hated gym class because not because I was an inactive kid, but because it was dominated by bullies and mm-hmm. big boys who want to just beat the crap out of you. So I got kind of good at just sort of vanishing out of gym class and stuff. And I think I've just been able to kind of vanish out of some sessions that I knew were <laughs> going to be bad for me, you know, and they sure. can go somewhere else and do those, you know, um, and that's kind of worked, you know, I mean, not, I'm, I'm sort of joking here. I don't yeah. really feel like I've turned down a lot of stuff, but, um, more than anything, the people that contact me turn out to be cool. Like I just did a session with this band called Cato Nines, and they're from, well, they're from all over the place. But their starting point is people is Cleveland. Um, that was an amazing session, and I didn't know these people before, you know. And their songs were totally cool. And it amazes me that this many years into doing this, this happens kind of a lot, you know. Yeah, that, that's that great. People find me and they send me their stuff, and it's like. Wow, you know, yeah, let's do this. You know, that's that's amazing, and that's been that's still true. That's great. Well, actually, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd like to uh, let's let's uh, segue into more current day. But before we get there, I, I just wanted to touch upon kind of where you were at when the kind of the system changed. I guess early two thousands when you know Napster came around and iTunes came around, and then you know on the heels of that is home recording came around. Mm-hmm. Was there any, you know, what was your headspace then? Was there writing on the wall for, for you or anything? Or, like, I got to change a business model? or? Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit. But or then, denial. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, is that, like, I mean, when I started, I was coming out of the home recording scene, too. And I loved it. And I, sure. I, so I didn't, like, hate it. And I didn't see it as, like, this big threat. I mean, I always thought that 
um, there's that, and then there's this, and they can coexist, you know. And that was true. I mean, but it did change somewhat in that, um, you know, there was a pretty much stronger difference between the pro studio stuff and what most people could get mm-hmm. when I started. Then, then it became later. But then what? I, so, so anyway, it was. It felt more like what happened was just a reflection of like whether people thought I was cool or not. And in the '90s, I wasn't very cool. But by then. Um, but I was still working, and there were other people using the studio some too, which I always encouraged, and so we kind of weathered that okay. And and I did a few records in the '90s that were some of my favorites, so I, I still was kind of in there, but I, I wasn't like the you know hot young thing anymore, and that's inevitable. Um, but sometimes it felt a little chilly, but I just still just sort of thought, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I just soldiered on, and that was okay. But in the 2000s, it's funny we built the or the studio building we have now was built to be a studio and therefore expensive and we uh, did our first session in there the the year that the record industry went into its inexorable decline you know it mm-hmm. just 2000 was the year of the that's when you crossing built. the graph point you know and it, of course it's never recovered you know um and i guess I was vaguely aware of that, but, you know, because we had been kind of off the radar all along, I thought maybe it wouldn't matter too much because we weren't really, you know, I was always reading. I mean, there were other studio shakeouts before then that I had read about and 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 things that looked like a shakeout in the making. You know, there were times when, like, studios were such a thing and they were building so many studios. And even then I was thinking, how can this work? You know, do, sure. we, do we need all these places, you know? Um, and by being sort of cheaper and humble and indie-ish and all that kind of stuff. We kind of were immune to some of that. Um, and, and, and I think that's still true. I think that we are cl- more closely connected to just music making than the biz. Sure. And I think that's what saved us because people are always going to want to make music and they like to record it for various reasons. But anyway, but what did happen was a few years into the 2000s, then it finally hit us. Uh, sort of, uh, We had a really incredibly week year that was probably about 2008 or okay. nine or maybe nine or 10, somewhere in there. We had a one year that was just dead and it was like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's like, and I'm already too old to be hired as one of those guys that stands at the front of Walmart. It's like, what am I going to do? You know? <laughs> and it was scary, you know? Um, and it was, I think the, you know, the perfect storm of the, you know, the money going out of the typical distribution methods and then the home recording thing came on really strong because I think a lot of people thought, now, now we really can do it. We really don't need that studio anymore. And we had a couple of sessions here where there was a session that a friend of mine did. And uh, and it was funny because one of the people in the band was one of these computery guys that really jumped in it. And at the conclusion of the session, he said to my friend, like, hmm, I could have done this. You know, like, he really thought that, like, his equipment was, that, that he had basically just wasted his time and that he could do it at home. And, but my thinking was that, like, that's never going to quite be the truth. Like, a lot of people bought that stuff and then realized they didn't like to use it, that it was a pain in the ass. Right. They didn't want to mess with that stuff. Or they don't have a good place to set it up in their house, or you know, or 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 there's a million things that make the studio make sense, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to survive. But I think what happened was after a couple of years into, okay, there's not going to be any money, the economy sucks, but we're kind of bored with being gloomy about that. And okay, I could buy this computer, but I really don't want to. You know, it's it, it sort of as, as the things roll on, 
you know, you could say that that DIY and no money thing was a, was a, almost like a fad that mm-hmm. sort of you know matured into something else. Anyway, the point is, a lot of the people that come in the studio now are either refugees from recording at home and realize they didn't like it, or they bypassed it altogether and just always thought that recording in the studio was cool, which it is. And, you know, all those things. I think that there is something psychologically really good about having a dedicated place where you go do a thing. You know, like in the in the 90s, and well, even going back to the 80s, they were really selling the home office. Mm-hmm. And I bet a lot of people have set up home offices and been really depressed by it after a right. while you know and i think the studio thing is kind of the same way and some people do love to record at home and so you know it's actually now it's it's at a good mature point where we'll do uh, the drums and the bass and the guitars and they'll go home and they'll do singing at home or mm-hmm. something like that that's totally sensible and it's actually a good idea some of the stuff that people want to do at home i would rather them do at home like i don't if they have not figured out their backing vocals i don't really need to sit there and watch them figure it out right. and i mean sometimes it's good to kind of pressure them to go ahead and figure out something as opposed to taking forever but if people have any self-discipline and can work at home then there's parts of it that really make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and it can make the project a lot more affordable you know where it really matters technically probably is cutting the basic tracks and in mixing we can do both of those things better than they could do at home probably mm-hmm. but there's all that stuff in the middle that they can do and save a lot of money um and that way we have work and they have they get to use their stuff they bought and, you know and, and they get to have the peace and quiet to just think there's a lot of good things about the technology working right now with the studios and the home stuff yeah i mean your website's got a great the frequently asked questions seems it's very rational and and, mm-hmm. and plays to both sides of the fence of exactly what you just said right it's like you know there's really no right or wrong way to do things. Well, but yeah, we can do why, things, you know. yeah, that's why I said, like, do, do, I can record this on my phone. Do we need you? And I said, maybe not. You know, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, it depends what kind of music you're doing. I think the more the music is like something you've heard before, the more it kind of needs to be done in the studio. You know, it's like we're used to some studio sounds that we've heard our whole lives that are hard to do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not doing music that depends on that, if it's all samples, you know, or whatever, you really don't need to be in the studio. Right. Um, you made me think about a question when you were describing um, – you know, working on the background vocals. Do you prefer having somebody come in the studios with, you know, seventy five percent there versus twenty five percent there? Yeah, I would much rather work on the icing on the cake than this basic shit. You know, okay. I mean, that's just drudgery. You know, right? And if if somebody like kind of doesn't know how to play, it's a very expensive place to learn. You know, and yeah. it's really boring for me. <laughs> I mean, if I can help somebody a little bit, I will. But you know what I'm saying? There's there's and I don't like over-preparation either. I, this idea that you're going to you know, work something to death and then play it on the road for a year and all that stuff, I mean, that just makes it change, but not necessarily for the better. Mm-hmm. I think once people are kind of mature musicians, they do great work when they have not planned it out, like the later Beatles records are examples of that. You know, They, they figure it out on the spot. It's the first time it happened. They're still excited about it. You know, That's the best. Those records that have that element are my favorite records, as opposed to super tidy, super rehearsed records. You know, that's fine but not not as interesting to me um so you know i I, you got to mix it up a little bit but some of that just basic stuff i would much rather them have worked out you know and i I always cite backing vocals because i think so many people think that they're no big deal but they're they're a very big deal and in some ways have to be more accurate than the lead vocal Mm -hmm. and so you know sometimes i I can we get into that and i was like oh no here we go we're gonna be here all night because they haven't got it in their head yeah you know well it's funny that i feel like uh rem was so good at that 
you know, the, using Mike Mills and how he did, how he approached either backing vocals or like a counter, you know, to what Michael was singing. At yeah, times. they were a good band. I mean, they were just a good band. And, yeah. and, and a lot of that singing stuff they had already been doing. I mean, both those records we did were uh, mostly songs they had played live, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always have to mention Bill's singing, which I think is very important on Murmur mm-hmm. and really is great. I didn't realize that. It's all that low stuff that is in there is Bill. And it's like, if you listen to a song like Pilgrimage, there's this low voice. It's just got a good vibe, but he's, he was cool. So those guys both did interesting backing vocals and some of them were worked out in the studio and some of them they've been doing. Okay. I'll, I'll refrain. I could talk about, I can talk about the, those recordings forever. Um, we can, we can wind things down in a couple minutes. Uh, but back to, uh, uh, I don't want to say it wrong. Is it Fidelitorium? Fidelitorium. Fidelitorium. This, this is Fidelity. Because I was kept thinking hi-fi. Hi-fi? Is it hi-fi or hi-fi? Yeah, it's Fidelity really or hi-fi? homage to Fidel Castro, but not everybody knows that. <laughs> what's the what's the um, the Latin? Um, I just thought it was funny. You know, it's like uh, it, it's like um, it's obviously a made-up word okay. and, and, and obviously a mistake <laughs> because people stumble on it, but a lot of people don't. A lot of people think it's really clever and great. And other people are like, "What's that weird word? Can I just make a check out to you?" You know, I mean, it's like whatever. I, you know, but I just did it in a fit of thinking about these old um, studio names that were like humorously redundant. You know, like, well, there was a place in Raleigh called Audiophonics, which is kind of like saying <laughs> right. "sound sound." Right. Um, and there are a lot of names like that. And I thought I just wanted to name the studio "studio," so I thought I'll make up a fake Latin word for that, which would be like "accurate room." You know. That was, you know, fidelity and orium, auditorium, whatever. Um, that was the concept. Okay, it's so it's. I got to tell you, it's. Uh, well, I'll give my interpretation. Sonitas versimus mundi. Oh right. Oh, that's just world's best sound. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so it, it does have a, a a true meaning. Well, that was a true Latin meaning. Okay. Yeah, that's real Latin. Um, but but the name fidelity is, is, is okay. Okay, because when I when I googled that. It's just sent me to your site. Oh, okay. I'm like, what the hell does it mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, how is it set up? So you're, I can get you for a day rate. There's also other staff members. So you have um, three or four producers and engineers, or how 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 is it set up? It, nothing is exactly formal, but the people that you see on the website are the people that are here pretty much. I mean, the person that's here the most after me is Missy Thangs. She's, she's here a lot. Um, and then that other person that's on there, John Fifner, works here occasionally. He's mm-hmm. he's had his own place forever, and he still keeps that going too. But he does a lot of stuff here. We just um, and then we have a, like a sort of next ring of like maybe six people that come here quite often. Like the guy that's down there today is this guy Jason Richmond, um, who's a really really good engineer and uses several studios in the state to do various sessions. And it's you know he just picks according to what he thinks is the best setup for what what's happening. Um, so, you know, part of building the place was to have a standardized kind of environment that anybody can come into and work. So like Bill Simzik could work down there pretty comfortably. I, I don't know if Bill would have wanted to work in the house, you know, because mm-hmm. he came from the traditional pro studio world, you know. Right. But he can work down there, and it's just kind of like when he worked in L.A. or something, you know. So um, that was the idea of building that place. And um, so – you know, we're always trying to get more people to use it, and uh, you know, because I like that world of freelance engineers and the people they bring in. Or you know, it's a different. Like this guy Jason, for example, he knows different people than I do. He knows a lot of 
for lack of a well, I hate to use this term. Everybody probably just hates it, but like world music ish stuff. He's mm-hmm. in that scene, and he brings in people that play all kinds of crazy instruments made out of you know gourds and stuff, and it's really cool. <laughs> and I don't know that scene, you know, and he does. So, um, you know, most of what we do down there is is rock music, but um, or you know, and loosely defined, right? Um, but occasionally, you know, we get stuff that's different from these other people, and that's great. Are you always? Uh, do you have your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on, or they have autonomy to kind of do what they do? Or? No, they can just do what they do. Okay. I mean, uh, they can call me on the phone if they can't find something, but, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. you know they're professionals. They can, I trust them. They can just use the stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I wrap up every show with the, the same five questions to everybody. It's the final five questions. So okay. let's, uh, let's do this. So number one is, uh, um, what music-related possession um, has the most sentimental value to you? Hmm. <laughs> it's funny. This 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 question has actually evolved. I mean, a these bit. are going to be random answers that may not sure. even be definitive. But I, I would say that the family tape recorder that my dad brought home in '62 or '63 would have to be it because that was the thing I could record on, and it was the starting point of me doing all this jazz. Uh, question number two is: If I was to give you a million dollars to give to charity, who would get it? Um, you know, maybe the, maybe the Humane Farming Association. Is that the, the, any any animal charity would be okay, okay. but that's one I've given money to in the past, and uh, you know, it's it's maybe not as glamorous as giving it to like the uh, you know a, a wildlife thing, but I feel mm-hmm. like farm animals need protection more than anybody, you know, oh, yeah. and and so um, that would be maybe the one. I just drove past a, tr- a chicken truck the other day. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to give up chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, on a lighter note, um, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Uh, well, you know, I think a walk-up music to about anything for me might be Nelson Riddle's Route 66 theme. Not the Get Your Cakes on Route 66. Okay. Song, not that song. This is the TV theme song. It's just instrumental music, and it's really beautiful. It's very sort of early Mad Men kind of vibe. Okay, cool. It's oh, like cool. sort of pop jazz, mm-hmm. um, great production. And it, that song just makes me feel good. It's it's very optimistic. It's like, whatever you're going to do next is going to be really cool. Yeah, that's what that song says. Um, on the flip side of that, what song is stuck on repeat in hell? Oh. Well. Hmm. There, there, are, there are a lot of contenders for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have to get back to you on that. Okay. I'll, uh, I can do a post. I'm sorry. I, no, that's good. I, I mean, a lot. Some people don't. Some people are like right away, like, "Oh, I know a song. I can't stand this. other people." Are. I mean, you know, any Ted Nugent song would would fit because he's such a despicable piece of shit that anything. I, I mean, he had one great moment. His the, when he was in the Amboy Dukes and they did Journey to the Center of the Mind. That's a good song. Everything that's a Ted Nugent song basically sucks. So I would say any of the other boring. Okay. You know, so any of those would be fine. That raises a question. It's so funny. I had this question all week long, and I would have totally left it out if you didn't mention that. Do you ever, you know, you record with so many different people, so many, do you ever have, um, do politics ever come into play? Like, would you, you would refuse, obviously, you would refuse, if Ted Nugent's like, hey, I want to record here, would you say, eh, take it somewhere else? Um, I think, you know, if he would come in as a, as just a guitar player, you know, I'd be, I'd be fine, but I don't, I don't want to hear his stupid rants or anything. I mean, yeah, he's pretty revolting. It would never happen. Um, you know, it comes up sometimes, but not too much. Most, most musicians are, are, Fairly politically hip, but you know there was like in the early two thousands definitely a wave of these sort of libertarian types coming in, and I, I kind of think that's a really bullshit stance, and 
you know, but I didn't get into it with them, you know. I mean, they can do their thing. But, you know, if they say something, I, I can remember one guy talking about local local this, local that. And I, and I said, look, dude, I said, it's so easy to, like, hate the federal government, but I mean, until the current era, I'm inclined to think that the federal government probably knows more than some alderman from Kernersville. I don't really love local so much automatically, you know. Yeah. I, I don't. So I, that's about the level of like argument I'll get with. But you know, our, the studio is bristling with things that would offend some people, and if they if they get offended, that's just going to have to be their problem. Yeah. But um, you know, it's it's not an issue really. Okay. Uh, last and final question is: uh, What's your most memorable live music experience? Well, that's that's really tough, but and I know um, you're you're privy to a lot of other live experiences that other people aren't. But I mean, there's so many, and so this one, I, I kind of, I absolutely will not do a top ten or anything. Like I can't, sure. I just am incapable of it. But one show that was mind blowing that still strikes me as perfection was Craftwork uh, in, in DC in '81, right when the Computer World came out. They mm-hmm. played at the Warner Theater, which is a great place to see anybody. Um, that was just a perfect show and it was that great lineup of the that did trans europe express and all that sort of you know the main mm-hmm. body of work um so impressive and so enjoyable so maybe that one good answer yeah well mitch i can't thank you enough for taking so much time with me i appreciate a, it a pleasure and it's an honor to meet you well likewise thanks for um thanks for doing this All right, that concludes part two of my conversation with Mitch Easter. Mitch is such a talented, humble, nice, down-to-earth guy. Really appreciated everything he did for us. Not only did he give me two hours of his time, but afterwards he showed me around his studio, which was a delight to see. I snapped a couple of pictures, so head on over to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages to get a glimpse of those. We'll be back next week with an artist who's said to have had more famous admirers than civilian ones, so tune in to see who that might be. Until then... Good night, Cleveland.